It's always exciting when you have children able to recite full stories from the Bible and are excited to do it. So um, that's definitely a credit to our, our parents and our Sunday school teachers and everyone who's playing a, a role in, in educating our children in the Bible and the things of the Lord. It really is awesome to see and to be a part of. So, of course, today is uh, concluding our annual missions week where we've put the spotlight on some of the on, on some of the, the huge things God's done in the world and on the biggest assignment God has given to the church. And what is that assignment? Well, I think we figured it out already, but uh, we're going to look at it a little bit more this morning. So would you bow with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this incredible assignment you've given to us as the church. I pray, Lord, this morning that as we focus in on mission, as we focus in a little bit more on each one of our our hearts and our role in this mission, I pray that you would open uh, each one of our hearts and minds individually to uh, a further level of understanding and a deeper level of obedience in engaging in the part you would have each one of us to play. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, your servant, to that end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to begin with a quick Bible survey this morning, looking at some of the key verses that speak to God's number one assignment for his church. I want you to, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me. I'll give you just a quick pause in between each of them. We're going to begin uh, in Matthew. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew, we're going to begin with chapter 24 and verse 14 in Matthew. And I want to encourage you to underline these verses or highlight them in your own Bible as we go through them, because these are verses to live by. These are verses to read often and even to memorize. And I challenge you, some of you are very good at memorizing, some of you maybe not so good, but there are some very key verses in Scripture that are so beneficial to memorize, and I believe these are key to us having them internalize what our mission as the church is. So Matthew 24, verse 14, says this, Jesus speaking, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We're now going to move ahead to Matthew 28, and a very famous passage, the Great Commission. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Then we're going to flip ahead to the next gospel of Mark. Matthew, pardon me, Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Again, Jesus speaking and speaking to his disciples. Mark 16, verse 15. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. I always loved this verse, as a, especially as a child, because uh, the King James says, to every creature. And so I thought, well, maybe I can preach to my dog. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be? <laughs> I don't think that's quite what it was getting at. Uh, but all creation uh, in all the world, again, the emphasis. Now, uh, another famous one, we're going to keep going ahead, chronological order here, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Again, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then finally, Acts chapter 13 and verse 47. Now relaying everything, these were all the Lord Jesus giving these commands to his disciples, and now this is being relayed, repeated, Acts 13 verse 47. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So are you picking out the assignment yet? Anyone picking out what's the theme here? What's the mission? What is it? Making disciples? Making them where? Everywhere. The entire earth, the entire world is our mission field. This is our assignment. Even the Old Testament looks ahead to this great assignment that would be given to the church. In Psalm 96, verse 3, we read this. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Now, the first question I want to ask after doing this quick Bible survey this morning is this. Are any of these verses suggestions? Any of them? No, that's right. It's, it's okay to, to respond when I ask a question. I'm looking for a response, okay? So none of these are suggestions. None of these are, if you get around to it or if you feel like it, do this. It's, no, imperative. It is, it is emphatic. It is non-negotiable. These are commands. Even the one passage in Acts 13.47 where it's relaying says, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. It's not the great suggestion or the great omission, as some have called it. It's the great commission. It is an imperative. It is a command. As I said last week, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others is the primary business of the church. And this is an absolutely massive, world-sized mission that, once complete, will actually end this phase of world history. Like, there's a lot riding on this mission. It's not just a, it'll be nice once it's done kind of a thing. No, once this mission is complete, this age of human history will come to an end. As Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this is the mission, and what's riding on it is the end, Jesus' return. And so, let me just ask you, are you eager for Jesus' return? Do you want the Son of God to return and and end all of the madness and the sin and destruction and hurt that's going on in this world and redeem his people once and for all and remove the sin from us forever? We won't even have the desire for it anymore. I am looking forward to that day. I am eager for his return. And so, if we are, then in a very real sense, we need to get the job done. In fact, I believe it was Peter who even said that in doing this, we can, if it were possible, even hasten the day of the Lord's return. There's this sense of his return is, I, I know the day and the hour, no man knows, only the Father, but there is some onus on us, the church, completing the mission before Jesus will return. But now I know what you're thinking. It's such a big mission. It's a world-sized mission. Where do I, as an individual, as a person, where do I even begin? Well, as a kid growing up on the farm, there were very few ways to make money. 
From some of my other friends, I'd heard some legends about some children who were actually being paid for working around their yard. I'd, I'd heard these legends. And I thought, could it really be? And then, and then I heard from other friends this mythical thing called weekly allowance. What is that? Sounded, sounded too good to be true, but in the greening household, those things simply didn't exist. So I made money by primarily, in my younger years, raising Cornish giant roosters. And we would, we would butcher these roosters at the end of the year and sell them, of course. And this was the primary way that I could, if we had a good year and not too many died, I might make a hundred bucks for a whole year's work. But that was big money for me, and I finally had some disposable income in my hand. But there was only one problem, and the problem was always the same each and every year. After that money was in my hand and the roosters were out of the coop, that coop had to be cleaned out by hand. There was, no other, there was no other way. It was too low of a building. You couldn't get in there with a tractor. You couldn't get in there with any other means. It had to be a pitchfork and a wheelbarrow, and it was the only way. Now, those of you that have shoveled chicken or rooster manure, has anyone here had that wonderful experience? Okay, a lot of you. You know that you're hard-pressed to find a more miserable job in the entire world. Because not only is it, by it's very, it's very dense, it's heavy, and after the roosters have been packing it for, for walking on it, you know, they, they, it's hard-packed layers. But even so, the smell is so powerful that even with a mask on, your lungs are burning and your eyes are watering, especially once you get into the juicy stuff. Ugh. So anyways, even with multiple people shoveling, this is a good-sized coop, even with multiple people shoveling and wheelbarrowing it away out into the field, our coop took the better part of a day with multiple people working to clean it out. But then a few years down the road, I graduated into being solely in charge of the roosters. So, of course, the bonus was I made all the profit, but the negative was I had to do all the shoveling. Knowing this needed to be done every year, I did what any savvy teenager would do. I procrastinated. I procrastinated and I procrastinated and and then I procrastinated some more. And mom nagged, well, I won't say nagged, but reminded and reminded and reminded some more because I knew eventually, and sometimes it even came down to, we need to get the next, if you want to make money again to get the next ones in there, you got to get it cleaned out. Now, I remember that finally when reality sets in that no matter how long I put it off, eventually I have to do it. And I remember quite well how one year with a heavy heart and a deep sigh, today's the day. And I open up the barn door And pushing the wheelbarrow inside, just then, Grandpa Greening came shuffling by on his way to the gas tanks. And he saw me there, and he stopped, as he usually would if we we crossed paths during the day, and he asked what I was up to. And so I proceeded to share with him my tale of woe, having to shovel out this whole coop by myself. Well, he, he listened, and I think he pretended to be sympathetic. Then he shared a quick little story of how much shoveling he had done as a lad, A lot more than I. But what stood out to me is I remember him saying something very much like this. And this is what he said. Just take out the first wheelbarrow load. And then see where you are by supper time. Just take out the first load and then see where you are by supper time. And so I did what he said. And much to my surprise, by supper time and some 20 wheelbarrow loads later... I was half done. (laughs) And that always stuck with me. 
Because it was grandpa's way of saying, if you've got a big job in front of you, the only way to get it done is to start working. Take out the first load. Take the first step, and then another, and then another, and then down the road, supper time, look up and see where you are, and you might be surprised at what you've accomplished. In the same way as Christians, we've been given this gigantic world-sized mission to reach every last corner of this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's daunting. It's massive. It's overwhelming. But I believe if each one of us were to simply start with one thing, just one thing, and we keep at that one thing, and then see where we are at supper time, or the end of our lives, if you will, we might just look back and be amazed at the big things that God has done through our little steps. So let me share with you this morning just a few small steps from God's word of how you and I can up our level of engagement in God's big mission for the world. So turn with me again to Psalm 96, if you hadn't turned there already. Psalm 96. I have five steps for us this morning, five small steps if you're taking notes. The first step is this. Step number one, learn to worship. Learn to worship. Verse 1 of Psalm 96 says this, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now I know that this isn't a typical missions text, as this passage is primarily speaking about worship and music. But in studying this psalm closely, I discovered that in fact mission is at its very core, because God's primary mission is not just to save sinners. Listen to this. God's primary mission is not just to save sinners, but to transform sinners into worshipers. In fact, the foundation of witness is worship. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, but have you heard me sing? Cats fighting or uh, fingernails on a chalkboard sound better than my voice. Now, if that's you, or you think that about your singing voice, even if that were true, which I doubt it isn't, but even if that were true, learning to worship doesn't mean that you need to become the next Gaither Band or Chris Tomlin or Hillsong. In fact, while singing is one of the primary ways that we will worship God, especially corporately, singing is far from the only way to worship God. Because true worship comes not from our lips, but from our heart. Put a beautiful singer with a beautiful voice, but with a hard heart, besides someone who can't carry a tune in a bucket, but they have a soft heart towards God. Which one is making a pleasing melody unto the Lord? Which one? The one with the soft heart and the voice that can't carry a tune in the bucket. It's not about the quality of our voices that determines the quality of our worship. It's about our hearts. We need to tune our hearts to sing God's God's grace. I love that line in the great hymn. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. It's incredible of what a tuned heart towards worshiping God can do in our lives. A.W. Tozer said this, We're here to be worshipers first and workers only second. We take a convert and immediately make a worker out of him. 
God never meant it to be so. God meant that a convert should learn to be a worshiper first. And after that, he can learn to be a worker. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it. If you want to become an effective witness for Jesus, step one is probably not something you might have thought of, but it's this. Learn to worship. Learn to worship God with your whole heart and your whole life. Become increasingly captivated by who God is, what he has done, and by his incredible and steadfast and enduring love towards you. And the more you reflect on those things, and the more you learn to worship, the more naturally his goodness will flow from lips in sharing him with others, because it's coming from a sincere heart, a sincere place, that is truly captivated by the beauty of God. Because, my friends, if we're talking to others about the beauty of God, but we're not actually captivated by it, people pick up on that. It rings as a little insincere, but if we are truly in love with God and what he's done for us, and we are worshiping and and praising him from that place day to day and week to week, when we talk with others about it, sincerity comes through. Learn to worship first. And watch how that will affect your witness. We see a great example of this even in the children's feature this morning. Paul and Silas in prison. For what? Witnessing. They were preaching. They were doing the mission. But they're in in jail. And what do they decide to do? They decide to worship. They're singing. And, And what is it that breaks the walls down? Well, of course, it's God's power. But I like to think God in his sovereignty and his uh, maybe even sense of humor he used the vibrations of their voices and he magnified them so powerfully that their voices broke those walls down magnified by the mighty power of God as they worshiped and what was the outcome the witness was so powerful that the jail guard sees that oh they not only could they have escaped they didn't escape brothers what must I do to be saved And he was saved that very night, and he went home and told his family, and they were saved and baptized that very night. Worship directly led to a powerful witness in the salvation of a family. Incredible. Step one, learn to worship. Step two, view the mission not as an event, but as a way of life. View the mission not as an event, but as a way of living. Psalm 96, verse 2. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Now, I will admit that I used to view God's mission as an event. And I'd hear the story of Peter preaching at Pentecost, and 3,000 people were saved that day. Now, that was an event. And then, growing up, I'd see on TV how the Billy Graham crusades, he'd give the altar call, and thousands of people would come streaming forward to the front to receive Jesus. That was an event. And even once I started speaking and preaching and ministering, and and at Bible camp, when kids would come forward to place faith in Jesus, even in my mind, that was an event. But what about after the event is over? What then? What about all the days in between the big events? You see, the big events don't just happen on their own. I've learned over the years that the big events happen every day. We just don't see them. Because the big events are the day-by-day obedience, following after God steadfastly, day after day after day, And it's that obedience that will culminate in what we call the big event. 
where, where there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people are saved and changed and whole communities and even nations can be shaped by this. But those big events don't just happen out of the blue, do they? They happen because believers are day by day being faithful in the little steps. And so it's a lifelong process. It's not just hang your hat, circle a date on the calendar, that's the day, that's the big event when evangelism is going to happen. That's the day the big mission is going to happen. No, it happens every day. This verse puts it beautifully. Proclaim his salvation day after day. It's not just a one-time event-driven thing. It's a day-by-day reality. We don't necessarily do this by preaching a sermon on a street corner every day either. We do it from a heart of worship, living out, and when given the chance, speaking out God's salvation day by day in our lives, in our homes, with our families, in work, and in school. So view the mission, learn to view it, not as a singular event, but as a way of life. That's step two. Step three. Step three is, seems so obvious that it almost, I almost skipped it over, but we need to hit it home one more time. Step three is this. We need to go to the people who need to hear. I know it seems so obvious. It's, it's right there in our face, but we need to say it. We need to go to people who need to hear. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Now what's highly unusual about this verse is that the Jewish author, which I believe was David, the Jews were notorious for viewing themselves as the only people that God loved because after all, they were God's chosen people, a special treasure called out, a nation of priests and all that kind of stuff. So they had a very high view of themselves and a very, very low view of everyone else. In fact, there were jokes about the Gentiles being dogs within Jewish circles. And so, for in this context, Jewish, remember, Old Testament, this is a psalm. In fact, it goes back to, the, to Chronicles. For them to be saying, declare his glory among the nations, among all peoples, was highly unusual. But this author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, clearly understands and declares that God is not just for Israel, but the nations. And so in order to declare to the nations, that would mean at some point actually needing to go to them. And we just have to look at the the story of the prophet Jonah to see how hard that was, even for some of the good preachers in Israel, to go to the nations. It was tough for them. But this was the call, even in the Old Testament. Now we in the church know, of course, that Jesus loves sinners. He wants to save them. But our tendency is to focus our attention on those already saved in here. And our our tendency is always to move inward and not outward. And as we move inward, we tend to forget all about those out there who don't yet know about Jesus or haven't yet heard the message. In Matthew 4.19, when Jesus, the very first time he calls his disciples, it's familiar, every Sunday school child knows this verse, Jesus said to his disciples, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we always think fishing rod, right? And reel them in, and hook them and reel them in. Actually, it was a net in their context, right? A net, throw it out and catch them. We got to see them do that in Israel. But that whole idea, right from the very beginning, the first call was, come, follow me, and I will teach you to be fishers of men. We're not just going to the saved of the house of Israel. We're going outside. This is going global. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, if we're going to use this metaphor, are we putting our line in the water? Are we casting our net in the water? There is a fable told of a group called the Fisherman's Fellowship. 
The fishermen's fellowship was surrounded by streams and lakes full of hungry fish. And in their fishing lodge, they met regularly to discuss fishing and everything about fishing. Rods and reels, bait and tackle, boats and fish finders, they couldn't get enough of it. Let's just say they got really excited about fishing. Now, I have a hard time getting really excited about fishing, but I know some of you love fishing, and you get excited about it. Well, these guys were over the moon, excited about fishing, and one day someone suggested that, you know what, we love fishing so much, we need to develop a philosophy of fishing. So they carefully defined and redefined fishing and the purpose of fishing. They wrote it all down. They developed fishing strategies and tactics to disperse amongst all of their members. They began research studies and attending conferences on fishing and fish. And some even got PhDs in fishology. There was just one problem with all of this. As of yet, not one of them had gone fishing. So a committee was formed and a survey was launched to find out why. We love fishing so much, why aren't we fishing? Most didn't answer the survey, but from those that did, it was discovered that some felt called to study fish, a few to furnish fishing equipment for others, and several to go around encouraging the fishermen. Some said they had tried it once and not caught anything, so they gave up. That's me with real fishing. And most said that between the meetings at the lodge and the seminars and the other things that they were doing, they just didn't have the time to actually go and sit there with their line in the water because everyone knows you don't catch a fish in the first minute. It takes time. They just didn't have it. Now, Jake was a newcomer to the Fisherman's Fellowship. And after one stirring meeting of the fellowship, Jake actually went fishing. And it took him a few times out, but after some practice, he got the hang of it. He learned how to do all of the casting and reeling and everything else in between. And then with a little luck and a little bit of patience, he caught a choice fish. And everyone was so excited. At the next meeting, he told the story. And the fish got from this to that to that, as they typically do. But nonetheless, he had caught the fish. Everyone was so excited. They said, you're speaking at the next meeting. And sure enough, they put him on the stage, and he shared all about his exciting adventure and how he'd caught a fish. From there, the speaking invitations continued, and he got elected to the board of directors of the Fisherman's Fellowship. And after all of this, Jake no longer had time to go fishing. But soon he began to feel restless and empty, and he longed to feel that tug and the excitement of having one on the line once more. And so he said to his friend, come with me, leave it all behind, grab your rod, and let's just go fishing. And so they did, just the two of them. And guess what? They caught more fish. And so it was that while the fish in the lakes and streams were plentiful, the fishermen were few. And so often what ends up happening is that while we all agree that engaging in God's big mission for the world is the church and the Christian's highest priority, there isn't a higher one in the world other than to love the Lord your God. Second to loving the Lord your God, the second is is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That means bringing them the love of Jesus. This is the highest priority of the church. In actuality, it is often one of the least practiced. So while we may be really good at talking about fishing, are we actually dropping our lines in the water? Do we sincerely believe that knowing Christ is the best way to live and the only way to live with God in heaven for eternity? If we do, then we need to engage in the mission. We need to go to where the fish are. So it begs the question, what does that look like? What does that look like? Does that mean that the second you get out of church today, that you should tackle the next person you see on the street, shout John 3.16 in their face, and evangelize them real good. 
Is that what it means? Would that be effective? While it might be an effective way to end up in the RCMP report, probably not an effective way to go about witnessing. A better way is to start by knowing people who don't yet know Jesus. I know it seems crazy, but it's true. Befriending people who don't yet know him. One of the other bullet points that Dave gave in his uh, report on the Mangan Church, one of the things this missionary who had gone back had noticed, and I wrote it, I wrote it down quickly in my notes here this morning because it just jumped out at me. It said this, In the Mangan Church at Lele, the missionary noted that the believers are making extra effort to befriend non-believers, especially those who are still engaging in ancestor worship. Incredible. The, the Mangan believers, they're getting it. They're getting it. And in a village of 200 people, 120 are believers. It's, a, it's effective. They're intentionally going out and befriending those who are most hostile to the message. I just, that just jumped out at me. And if we learn to befriend people who are even some of the most hostile to Christianity, I believe that's an amazing place to start. Because once we do that, then we make it our focus to pray for their salvation before we preach a single word. We must pray and pray and pray for their salvation. And then pray and pray and pray that God would give us an opportunity to share in some way, even if it's small, of his love. And then do practical things. Be kind to people. Do practical things that are good and helpful. You know, do things that that people, as Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. Do good deeds. Do things that are good. Engage in, in things like the food drive. Engage in other things that are happening around the community where you can volunteer and people see, hey, those Christians are really doing a lot of good in this community. I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, but I, I can't argue with the fact they are doing good. And that is an important part of laying the foundation of an effective witness. And then from there, you can be a missionary wherever you are and wherever you go. Some of our best missionaries from this church are those who are volunteering at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp or some of the other Bible camps in our province. Children are coming to the Lord in those places. Lives are being changed. You are missionaries at Bible camp. Another great, great way to reach children is to, if you, if you know they're not able to, volunteer to pay their way to Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. Or refer them to our church's camp sponsorship program, which will pay their way so that they can attend. Because it's incredible what God does in young lives at camp. Other practical things. Invite people to youth group or church functions. And all of this, all of this, It's just a reminder to say we need to actually go to the people who need to hear and engage in some way. And when done in the right spirit, that can even be with a stranger on the street. I I was impressed just again last night. these 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 are current things going on and this just fit with what I was talking about. Alison Wolf had just posted on her Facebook page last night this message. I just want to read it to you. Alison Wolf, many of you know her. She's from our church, baptized here. She's living in Winnipeg now. But this is something she shared. So I'm on the bus going to work when an elderly man sits beside me and asks me if I know the good news. I say, I do. And then we just start talking about God and Jesus until he had to get off at his stop. He told me he went 70 years just wasting his life And in the last three years, he's just been devoted to his relationship with God. He said he uses his old age pension to help the needy. 
Then he said how he can't wait to go to church tomorrow to take communion. This sweet man made my day. I find his testimony so inspirational. God is good. And that was Allison last night. Incredible. Here's a man who said, 70 years, I wasted my life, and now I'm engaging. And he, he met someone else on the bus who was encouraged and inspired. And how many more people isn't that man touching by just asking a simple question, hey, have you heard the good news? And imagine the interesting conversations he's had by those who say, what good news? And how the Lord would lead him in unpacking what the good news really is. Now remember, that's not to diminish that time here at the fishing lodge is important. We need to be built up in our faith. We need to encourage each other. We need to tell those stories of the one that got away and the ones that were reeled in. And we need to encourage each other. Because sometimes we've tried really hard to reach someone and they've rejected it and we feel discouraged. And it's here we come back and and get encouraged. Don't let that keep you down. Get back out there. We need time at the fishing lodge, but when we leave, we need to remember to drop our line in the water. Because even though I've never been good at fishing, one thing I do know for certain, the only way to guarantee failure is to fail to drop your line in the water. That's step number three. We need to go. Step four, we need to fear God more than man. We need to fear God more than man. Psalm 96 verse 4 says this, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. My friends, we need to just admit something this morning. God's big mission of reaching every man, woman, and child on this planet with his love is not easy. In fact, it's downright scary. And we get scared about all sorts of things. We get scared about what people will think of us, or, or we get scared of saying the wrong thing. We get scared of losing a friend, or of believing that big lie that the mission is somebody else's job who's more qualified than me. And so because of fear, we stay silent. Because of fear, we don't engage. Because of fear, we hide our light under the bushel. And this is why we must worshipfully focus on God and how great He is. Because if we know how mighty God is, The fear of him replaces the fear of what anything or anyone else can do to us. And to fear God, of course, doesn't mean that we run away scared. The fear of God in the proper context is the opposite of that. It means to draw near in reverence and in awe of him. And when men and women, boys and girls, learn to overcome the fear of man, history has shown repeatedly the incredible ways that just ordinary Joe Blow sort of people have been used by God to advance God's big mission in powerful ways. One such man who considered himself as one of the least important pieces of God's mission and was most certainly viewed by others that way was an Englishman named Jim. Jim was born in 1832, the son of a Methodist lay preacher. But as a young man, he ran away from the Christian beliefs of his parents rejecting it. But at age 17, after reading an evangelistic tract, he professed faith in Christ. And later that year, he was inspired by a speaker to go to China as a missionary. So after a few years of training as a doctor, a few seminary courses, he finally arrived in Shanghai, China in 1854. Eager to win China for Christ and zealous and just overflowing with enthusiasm. He went there, he offered his medical services, Invited people to his evangelistic services, but hardly anyone showed up. 
And after 18 preaching tours in and around Shanghai, he could not claim that a single person had placed faith in Christ as a result. Talk about coming up empty. And after this year plus of abject failure at every turn, he wrestled with the question, how can I possibly bring the message of Christ into this culture that seems so far from me? How can I help people see and embrace the truth when they have no biblical understanding? The barriers all around him just seemed insurmountable. The task appeared impossible, and he felt so utterly unqualified. But even with all of those obstacles in front of him, Jim knew God had called him, and so he couldn't quit. God had given him a vision to make a difference in the lives of these people in China. And so he decided, I've got nothing left to lose. I'm going to throw it all at this task. I'm going to try everything I can possibly think of. And so he decided to leave his English ways behind him, and he decided that I'm going to become one of these people. I'm going to become Chinese in every possible way I can. And so for starters, he gave up his English suit and tie. He began to dress like the people. He then shaved his head right down to the skin, except for one patch of hair that he let grow on the back, and then he let that grow out long for the traditional Chinese quay. Not only that, he began to wear it in the pigtail the same way that the Chinese people would. He then dyed it a different color so that he could fit in with those he was trying to reach. He changed his eating patterns. He worked hard to learn the new vocabulary and expressions in the hopes that somehow he would be able to effectively convey the truth in their everyday street language. Jim didn't do this all from a distance either. He moved into the neighborhood with these people. He adopted and cared for a Chinese street boy named Haban. He tried to become their friend, but this wasn't easy as the people were suspicious, rejecting both his heritage and his beliefs. Jim paid an incredible price of loneliness, weariness, and discouragement at every turn, including criticism from many Christians back home who looked down on him for a going native by adopting the Chinese culture. He also lived with the daily rejection of most that he was trying to reach. Then during some travels, he found out that all of his medical supplies being stored in Shanghai had been destroyed in a massive fire. Then in October 1856, while traveling across China, he was robbed of nearly everything he owned. It appeared things couldn't get any lower. But despite the lack of success and setbacks, he kept at it. And his life is a powerful illustration of mission against the odds. Is it worth taking risks to reach lost people with the love of Jesus? Is it right to proclaim the gospel in ways that might break a few paradigms, push back a few boundaries, and even ruffle a few feathers? If you're not sure, you might want to ask the hundreds of thousands of Chinese Christians who have been touched directly and indirectly by Jim, or as he's better known as, James Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission. All told, Hudson Taylor spent 51 years of his life in China. The mission that he began was responsible for directly bringing over 800 missionaries into the country. They began 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 conversions to Christ. And even after the communist takeover in China, when all the mission agencies and missionaries from the West were expelled from the country and the church was persecuted and forced underground, when, when, when some freedom was given and missionaries returned to China expecting to start from scratch, 
they were shocked to discover that a robust and healthy underground church was actually flourishing and numbering in the millions. And today, conservative estimates of the number of Christians in China are pegged at 67 million souls. That's over twice the population of Canada. 67 million people in China who profess Christ, and that's a conservative estimate. In the midst of his difficulties in China, Taylor had written a letter to his sister Amelia. Stated February 14th, 1860, before all of these incredible things had taken place, and this is what he wrote to his sister. If I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? What an incredible story of one ordinary man being used by Christ in an extraordinary way. And finally, step number five, know that you are not alone. Jesus put it right in the Great Commission to his disciples. He said this, And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we know that it is true, and Christ is with us. We don't go into his mission alone. We go in his name, with his presence, and in his power. And we trust that our small steps, when taken day after day after day for the long haul, and we look back at supper time, that God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your little acts have amounted to big change for eternity. So step one, learn to worship. Step two, view the mission not as an event, but as a way of life. Step three, we need to go to the people who need to hear. Step four, we need to fear God more than man. And step five, know that you do not go alone. Amen. Father in heaven, we are humbled and we are honored that you have entrusted your big mission for the world to ordinary people like us. Ordinary people that you called. People like Peter and James and John and Andrew. People like Paul and Silas. People like James Hudson Taylor. And people like us. And so Lord, I pray that we would not buy into the lies of the enemy that we're not qualified. Or that someone it's someone else's job. But Lord, I pray that each one of us would see that we can take small steps today. And that with your power, you will bless them, you will multiply them. And when we look back at the end of our lives at supper time, we might be blown away at what you have accomplished through our daily steps of obedience. Bless each one here in their witness, Lord, as we go out from this place. Bless this church's witness. And we do pray, Lord, that in our faithful small steps every day, that one day we might see that big event of your Holy Spirit washing away the barriers and many lives coming to you in saving faith. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.